91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware. I'm Bill Humphrey, and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on December 19th, 2016, and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, in the first of a two-part series, Greg and Jonathan joined me to discuss what worked and didn't work in Democratic health reform, as well as what really bad ideas Republicans have for replacing it. That's just ahead. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from wvud.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. It's Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me in studio again this week is Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me on. As usual, you can follow Jonathan at Jonathan Cohn on Twitter. And also, he posts stuff on, you know, arsenalfordemocracy.com and other places. Uh, And uh, returning to the show uh, on the line from Virginia is uh, our longtime, uh, one of our longtime rotating co-hosts, Greg. Hi, Greg. Hi, Bill. So Greg is going to be talking with us this week about uh, the future of health care policy in this country. That's certainly something that Greg has been on to talk about before and that we've talked about many times before on the show. Um, but we're, we're trying to get back to our uh, sort of big ideas theme on Arsenal for Democracy. In many countries and, uh, and also in, you know, United Nations documents, uh, right to health care is generally considered a fundamental right, but that's not the case in the United States. Greg, wh- where should we start in this conversation? It's obviously a huge topic, but where's the, where's the, the, the point to, to jump in on this? Well, I think the point to jump in is probably, I guess, a brief overview We talked about this obviously a lot, but the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010 and is President Obama's probably signature piece of legislation that he worked on. And with the election of Donald Trump, uh, that is very much in jeopardy. And so we in the health policy research field, um, which is what I do for a career, have been trying to figure out what exactly the future is going to look like. So I think maybe we can talk a little bit about the Affordable Care Act and give people a refresher on what that was, and then perhaps move on to what the potential plans are, or lack thereof, offered by uh, Republicans. That sounds good. Go ahead. So, um, like I said, the Affordable Care Act, March 2010, passed. There are a number of things that it put in place. Um, I think one of the premier things and one of the things that I have never thought um, 
anything negatively about is one of the things that it did was expand Medicaid. Medicaid is largely for low-income people to receive uh, health care, and it offered um, federal dollars in order for states to expand Medicaid. Medicaid is a state-based program um, that has federal matching funds, um, unlike Medicare, which is a national program, uh, but does have regional differences, obviously. So to the extent that states have control over these healthcare decisions, it, they certainly have uh, wielded a lot of control in um, Medicaid. Up until I think as recently as October of 2016, there were 31 states in the District of Columbia that had elected to expand. There was notably a very big Supreme Court decision um, back in, what is this, 2012? Well, so so one of the things that the Supreme Court decided in that uh, decision was that the Affordable Care Act was partially unconstitutional. So there was some uh, consternation among the health policy community whether or not the individual mandate was going to be upheld, and that basically entailed a requirement for people in the United States to purchase health insurance or face a penalty. Uh, the Supreme Court interpreted this as a tax, and thus it was um, upheld as constitutional. The other major part of the Supreme Court decision was that they found the federal matching funds for the Medicaid program uh being all or nothing was unconstitutional. So basically, the way that it worked was if states refused to expand Medicaid, then the federal government um, could withdraw all Medicaid funding uh, from that state. And the Supreme Court said that this was coercive and unconstitutional and thus basically made Medicaid expansion uh, optional. And so only 19 states have uh, this point not expanded Medicaid. And I think that this was largely probably the biggest success in uh, the Affordable Care Act. I don't think anybody would argue to any other effect um, that the Medicaid expansion was probably the best thing that came out of the Affordable Care Act. I, I think that people in the, let's say, liberal, progressive, democratic side would agree that that's the best part and would agree that it's successful. But considering that 19, or, or for the most part successful, given where it's been, whether that path has been uh, pursued, the states that have adopted it. But the fact that it hasn't been implemented in 19 states means that it's not universally popular, at least among a political class, not necessarily right. among, among like average person uh, assessing the Affordable Care Act. So I, I don't think it's kind of correct to say that everybody agrees. Possibly in, in health policy analysts not working at, at like the American Enterprise Institute or the Heritage <laughs> Foundation. But it's yeah. important to know that like there are 19 states that haven't done that. And can you tell us, let's say, uh, people might already know this, but look, why, did the, why have those states not? Okay, so that's actually a really good point. And so I guess I, I painted it with a little bit of a broad brush. I sort of think that anybody who is right thinks that it's the, the, <laughs> I the would best not, thing. I would not disagree with that. Right, right. Okay, so I, I do have a degree of sympathy, I guess, maybe for these states that have not expanded. Now, take, for instance, Texas. Texas is a state that has not expanded um, Medicaid. Uh, right now, if I'm not mistaken, the um, 
requirement in order to receive Medicaid in Texas is that your income has to be 14% of the federal poverty level. So the federal poverty level for an individual person, I think is somewhere between it's under $14,000 a year. I think it's, I think it might even be as low as $11,000 a year. So um, basically if you are, a per, if you make a couple thousand dollars a year in Texas, you are not eligible for Medicaid, which seems kind of ridiculous, but the federal government has contended, okay, if you expand and the expansion, and I should have pointed this out earlier, the expansion for Medicaid goes all the way up to 138% of the federal poverty level. So that is a significant expansion. It's going up to like fifteen, sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars. Right. right? For, a, for a family of one, the one hundred percent would be eleven thousand seven hundred and seventy. And for a family of one at one hundred and thirty eight percent, it's sixteen thousand two hundred forty two. So obviously most people have larger families than that. But like if it's a family of four, then, you know, one hundred percent is twenty four thousand and one hundred and thirty eight percent is thirty three thousand four hundred and something. Right. So so it is it is important to note that the federal government has agreed to do, uh, you know, uh, matching funds for the expansion and be 2020 and beyond. They basically said we're going to pay 90 percent of your expansion population. So from whatever your Medicaid expansion or whatever your Medicaid eligibility was previously, all the way up to 138. So for instance, for for Texas, it's basically everyone from greater than 14 to less than 138, which is potentially thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million people. Um, They would pay for 90% of that from 2020 and beyond. But I think part of what Texas... Texas's contention is is that's still a ton of money. Even if you pay ten percent of that uh, the healthcare cost for that expansion population to go from fourteen percent FPL eligibility all the way up to one hundred and thirty eight percent is an enormous expansion of the population and is uh, sometimes just not something that the states are willing to bear because, like we said, they do not believe that um, you know healthcare is 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 a right and they don't necessarily think that the government needs to uh, provide it to its citizens. And then part of that issue with Texas just has to do with how stringent they are to begin with, because it can sure. vary quite a lot from state to state with um, like kind of what hurdles one has to go through in order to get med- access to Medicaid. And keep in mind that these federal uh, these these Medicaid eligibility requirements based on the federal poverty level are obviously adjusted for the cost of living in the area. So places that, you know, have lower cost of living do have lower health care costs. But it's certainly not the case that, you know, um, people in Massachusetts, which has probably, you know, the most expansive and historically most expansive Medicaid uh, eligibility uh, requirements, um, it's certainly not the case that it's that much more expensive, healthcare is that much more expensive in Massachusetts than it is in um, Texas, that 14% FPL in Texas equals 138% FPL in Massachusetts. That's not the case. So there are definitely people in Texas that are very, very, very poor and not able to afford health insurance because they're not like absolutely destitute. Uh, And uh, my understanding is that there's because of this effective donut hole that was created by states opting out, 
Uh, there's obviously people who resent the reforms because they were then mandated to buy health insurance but not given any health insurance or any subsidy to pay for it because I don't think the subsidies were expanded to cover yeah, the you, gap. That's right. Tell, and then, tell us a little bit about that system of the, yeah. exchange, of the exchanges well, or like health insurance marketplaces. And then, I was also going to say, though, but uh, but besides that, in the states that did expand it, there's the issue of people who are at the bottom rung of the subsidy strata feeling kind of resentful that, like, it's still pretty expensive for them to buy health insurance and the people slightly below them income-wise are now covered to, you know, if, if you're right around that 138%, you're, you're jumping from having your health insurance provided by the government to not. Yeah, which is the problem right. with any policy with cliffs. So, so getting getting back to the the donut hole problem that, that both you and Jonathan brought up, um, if you live in a state that has not elected to expand uh, Medicaid, but you have an income that if you lived in another state that did expand it, you would be eligible for Medicaid. You're in a bit of a pickle because there are mechanisms in the Affordable Care Act that have been established in order to help people that don't get Medicaid to buy private health insurance on these things called exchanges or marketplaces. And so basically, if you make between 100% of the federal poverty um, limit and 250% of the federal poverty limit, you can get um, subsidies in order to help you pay for your co-payments and co-insurance and whatnot for your um, your health insurance. Plus, you also get um, a advanced premium tax credit um, on your premiums for your health insurance that you pay every single month. And thus, it becomes a little bit less expensive for you and for people between 250 and 400% of the federal poverty level, they just get the, uh, advanced premium tax credits. They don't get any of the cost sharing subsidies. But the problem for people that are in these states, these 19 states that haven't expanded is that like I said, it's only the the subsidies only kicking at a hundred percent because the expectation was that that states were going to do it, that it wasn't going to be optional, and that when the Supreme Court invalidated that part and said that it was going to be optional, it really threw a wrench into the entire thing because they wrote it with the expectation that everybody that would be that 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 what that one hundred percent was the only thing that was necessary for a subsidy. Now they're consider again Texas people you're making between fifteen percent and ninety nine percent essentially of the federal poverty level. You have to you are obligated to buy um, health insurance or you will face an individual mandate uh, tax. But unlike your counterparts that make 100% to 400% of the federal poverty level, you receive absolutely no federal um, premium assistance, none. And, you, and you're making 15 to 99%. And so this is you know, one of the major flaws of how the Affordable Care Act was written and you know, subsequently sort of dismantled by um, the, the Supreme Court decision. Thinking about the structure of the subsidies and the um, the exchange plans, there's also the issue of clawbacks with those um, that comes to mind because Democrats had wanted to make Democrats were afraid that people would complain about how costly the bill is and with their unfortunate deficit obsession, 
Uh, and so with, with the subsidies that some of that can get, if you take the subsidy up front, some of it can get clawed back. Right, right. And, and, and you know, I, I've talked to people that this has happened to, and it's a really unfortunate thing because you have to estimate at the beginning of the year how much money you think you're going to make annually. And for people that are, you know, close enough to the, the poverty line that they're eligible for, for Medicaid, their incomes are not particularly stable a lot of the time. And so if you underestimate how much money you're going to make in a year, and at the end of the year, you find out that you made more, you owe the government money because they paid you, um, they helped you with premium assistance based on believing that you were going to actually make less that year than you did. And so people end up at the you know end of the year owing the government money because the government gave them, quote unquote, too much subsidy. Yeah, because the one thing that always kind of annoyed me with the design of having a, a, a program with clawbacks and cliffs is that really feeds into Republican, kind of the Republican framework of a kind of hostility to government, of kind of, of welfare, government provided services, where you have the, the cliffs created so that people who are just, who are only slightly less poor now get a lot less out of something and would perhaps have en feel envy to those who actually get much more substantive benefits. And clawbacks feed into Republican anti-tax rhetoric. Oh, Be absolutely. Because it, it's a tangible thing that people would see of the government literally taking their money. <laughs> like, not out of a, like, I'm paying my tax, like, not the kind of, like, taxes are, our, uh, like, the price of civilization type, like, I'm contributing, yes, because we need r good roads and yada yada. It's literally the government saying... <laughs> Sorry, we want that money back. You're not that. You're not poor. You're not poor enough anymore. Sorry. Congratulations on your job. It's that they gave you the money and then took it away. Yeah. Greg, after the break, I want to talk about um, the uh, you know what's at risk under the mm -hmm. Trump administration. But before we go to a break, uh, are there other aspects that you wanted to talk about with regard to the current status quo uh, and the implementation of the Affordable Care Act? I know that. Um, you know, community health uh, centers was sort of a, a small but important component, which hopefully does not get rolled back. But I'm guessing right. it will because they're going to try to take money away from anywhere they can take it away from. And that's well, that's ironically, or maybe not ironically, that's the thing that was like I think propping up a lot of uh, health services in rural, heavily Republican areas for the most part. So there were a number of mechanisms that sort of fell outside of the traditional realm of the primary care setting that I think if they are maintained will in the long run probably drive down healthcare costs. And that's sort of preventive medicine through, you know, funds like the Prevention and Public Health Fund that, you know, fund community programs that are that are doing um, preventive work in, in heart disease and smoking cessation programs and all this kind of stuff. There's also the requirement for hospitals where they have to do a community health needs assessment in order to maintain their nonprofit um, stat and tax exempt status. So and then the community health centers. A lot of these things are built into the Affordable Care Act. I did say earlier, you know, that 
Medicaid was the only, Medicaid expansion was the only like objectively 100% good thing that came out of the Affordable Care Act. I think that there are a lot of these other sort of prevention and community health oriented things in the Affordable Care Act that I think are almost um, unimpeachable as well in the sense that you know they're they're using more tra non-traditional providers they're assessing the community health needs that they're instead of doing you know tertiary prevention they're doing primary prevention they're trying to prevent disease before it becomes really intractable and really costly and these sorts of things i think in the long run if we had seen this you know exist more than 6 years we'd probably see some see some dividends from uh, the, the healthcare system, which, and then think this is sort of the elephant in the room that we haven't been talking about. The reason that health reform is necessary is because the United States pays more for healthcare than pretty much any developed country in the entire world, despite the fact that, that we do not have, you know, a nationalized healthcare system and we have worse outcomes. I mean, we our, our outcomes are like worse than Cuba's, you know? And so there's very there's this dichotomy between the amount that we spend and our outcomes that we get and so there's always been this drumbeat of we need health reform we need health reform and i think that we've talked a lot about the good aspects of the affordable care act and we've also talked about a lot of the bad aspects of the affordable care act and i think when we come back from break i think we'll start talking about what the alternatives to the affordable care act are going to potentially be and the reason that there is even a discussion of alternatives is because there were failings within the affordable care act and um when the healthcare system when healthcare is as big of a problem as it is in the united states of america it's 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 a it's a very it's a very difficult puzzle to crack and there there, there were some failings that the republicans have offered some interesting proposals in order to solve, let's say. I think the reason that we're emphasizing things like Medicaid and the community health centers and stuff like that and preventative medicine, these, uh, some of these aspects are more on the actual health care side of things as opposed to the health uh, insurance or, or uh, whatever. Um, you know, there's other aspects that I think a lot of people feel are good that are, you know, things like uh, that the insurance companies have to treat you for, you know, uh, genetic or pre-existing yeah. conditions, things like that. And those are good, but they're also complicated to talk about because they're on the private insurance side. Yeah. And uh, A, some of that may go away, as we'll talk about, but B... Um, you know, that caused its own complications and issues for the private insurance sector and not just in a like, oh, boohoo, they're going to have financial problems. But like, you know, they may have some serious issues because of the way that that some of this was implemented and rolled out. And the consequence is less, oh, the poor insurance companies are going to get hit so hard. It's that they're going to withdraw coverage from people in certain areas, you know, or uh, I, we've seen plan rollback. So we'll talk about that. Uh, so Arsenal for Democracy will be right back in just a moment from arsenalfordemocracy.com and WVUD. Democracy. 
You're still listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Still in studio with me is Jonathan Cohn, and on the line with me uh, from Virginia is Greg. Uh, We've been talking this hour about um, some of the things that went right and some of the things that went wrong with the Affordable Care Act. Right before the break, we were talking about the uh, issue of... um, uh, the requirement for private insurance uh, companies to cover certain things that they had not previously covered or certain people that they had not previously covered, especially pre-existing conditions. Um, and we want to talk a little bit about that. And then uh, in doing so, uh, pivot into talking about what the sort of Republican quote unquote proposal is uh, at this point, or, or what are some potential proposals that have been floated. So Greg, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the issue of uh, who was required to be covered under private insurance that had not previously been required? Right. So, uh, you know, before before the Affordable Care Act's passage, there was no requirement that very, very sick people that had, quote unquote, pre-existing conditions were to be offered health insurance by anyone. This was a major problem with private insurance, the House Energy and Commerce Committee did an analysis of the top four largest private health insurance providers and their denials of um, coverage in uh, between 2007 and 2009. So these are the, you know, the final three years before um, the Affordable Care Act's implementation. And they found that one in seven people that applied for health insurance um, were denied health insurance because they had a pre-existing condition and upwards of between 40 and 60%. Now, obviously, you know, the, the numbers are kind of, um, uh, of fungible out there. Um, upwards of 40 to 60% of people theoretically have a condition that they could be denied for um, if this pre-existing condition mandate for private health insurers was to go away. For the sake of of the audience, what is a quote pre-existing condition? Gets talked about a lot in this, but like what, what would fall under that category? It, it, It definitely depends on the private health insurer you know, private health insurance companies may have upwards of 400 different conditions that could could potentially apply to pre-existing conditions. But this could be things like you have heart disease, you've had a stroke, you you have um, a lot of different cardiovascular uh, things. Basically, if the actuaries at the private health insurance company took a look at how much it cost to cover some of these people that have these chronic conditions that are very costly to deal with, but that if dealt with, you can live, you know, 30, 40 years with with these conditions. It's very it's very costly to cover these people, and they just decided we're gonna make a list and we're not gonna cover these people because it's too expensive, you know? And if we had to charge these people premiums based on literally how much they would cost us in order to get back our money, it would just be so high that we could effectively not give them health insurance anyway. I mean, like your premiums would be like, you know, $2,000 a month or something. And um, so, you know, effectively, it's either you're, you're, you're getting denied straight up because they're saying you have this condition, it's on this list, we've decided that it's too costly, or they've done this thing, um, which is also not permitted in the 
Affordable Care Act anymore called medical underwriting where they give you sort of like a checkup and they say like, oh, you have heart disease, thus your premiums are going to get jacked up really, really high. And thus, effectively, you're getting denied coverage because who can pay, you know, a $2,000 premium a month? So Jonathan, you wanted to talk about another aspect of what population is a big population that's getting covered now that wasn't previously getting covered. Oh yeah, I had just wanted to note before when we were talking about popular provisions of the Affordable Care Act, I was going to bring bring up the um, the kind of requirement that insurers will cover children on, up until age twenty six on on their parents' plan because I know I benefited from that. I did. Um, and I did. yeah, so we it, all did. We all did. So it's something, and it's something that I feel a lot of people forget about as a part of the plan, since it's one of the the minor tweaks that the that end up seeming like that it was always thus. So if you could speak a little bit about that and the impact on you, and the kind of the impact that that has on kind of like quote millennials. So one of the really great things that this expansion of coverage to 26 year olds and allowing them to be on their parents plans until their age 26 a lot of you know before this a lot of times it was like 21 and you were done is that it meant that people who normally were extremely healthy and thus previously did not have health insurance a lot of times when people aged out of their their parents plans they just didn't get health insurance and there is an incentive to have people in the quote unquote risk pool in health insurance that are very healthy and very low healthcare utilizers because they pay in a premium every month, they pay their deductible, whatever, and they don't use that much healthcare. And thus, they are helping the people that pay the, you know, pretty much the exact same amount that they do, but that are high utilizers. And so it was very, it was a good thing to have these people between the ages of, say, 21 and 26 that in lar- that largely were not insured before the Affordable Care Act. Now they're insured. Now they're still on their parents' plans. And so it's actually making the risk pools healthier. Now, a lot of the things that we've just talked about are very popular. And they're also things that the Republicans that are in charge right now have said that they want to keep in place. And I think that's admirable. I think that's great. I don't think that anyone's going to argue that, you know, private health insurance companies shouldn't be um, able to deny people with pre-existing conditions. Or I think maybe a lot of people wouldn't argue that. Jonathan, I know that you <laughs> <laughs> would probably say that somebody might argue that. Maybe some extremely libertarian person would say they should be able to do that. But I think a lot of people think that they shouldn't. And I think that a lot of other people think that it's like good that um children can be on their parents health insurance plans until they're 26 but a lot of the things that kept the popular portions of the affordable care act afloat were the less popular things so let's get into those specifically the ones that the republicans can repeal quote unquote with reconciliation and so i want to get into that very briefly to remind folks, reconciliation, which is something that we've talked right. about on the shows previously, is the procedure where the Republicans uh, could get a 51-vote uh, majority f- to pass things through the Senate. 50-plus pence. So if there's a tie, they would yeah. get the vice president, but probably they will have. Yeah, I mean, they'll, have, yeah. they'll have the vote, so but like in theory. 51, including the vice president, if necessary, um, as a basically by saying that it's a budgetary measure and that it's a budgetary measure that specifically will reduce the deficit. Now, in the past, um, 
such as with the Bush tax cuts, in cases where it has very obviously not benefited the deficit reduction goal, uh, they have simply fired the parliamentarian of the Senate and replaced that person uh, with someone who would agree that it uh, that it somehow reduces the deficit. And they, you know, they'll come up with uh, the justifying report. Like you're supposed to, I think you're supposed to use the Congressional Budget Office reports usually, but I think in that case, they just like pulled a Heritage Foundation report that uh, said that, and this was before the Iraq war and Afghanistan war, obviously, but they said that the, the Bush tax cuts alone would, would reduce the deficit and pay off the debt within like 10 years or something like it did, i don't know what the logic there was because they were depriving the government of revenue but you know they thought that this was going to su- yeah supply side economics etc um anyway so the the idea here would be that they could pass some of these reforms without going through the hassle of a filibuster and it is worth keeping in mind that the uh, part of the affordable care act was in fact passed that way as well although it legitimately did have deficit reduction value uh because of the uh uh student loan reform provisions which um incidentally i have not really heard that much discussion of and i would be very shocked if they kept those in place rather than repealing those but that hasn't really come up but anyway so that's what reconciliation is uh so go ahead with um what might be uh put through via reconciliation so a couple a couple of the things that we have talked about could potentially be repealed through reconciliation. So the federal um, premium subsidies that we were talking about, where you know we're talking about the advanced premium tax credits, so we're talking about the cost sharing reduction subsidies for people that make between uh, one hundred and two hundred. I mean one hundred and four hundred percent of the federal poverty um, level. Those could all be gone through reconciliation. Medicaid expansion could essentially be gone through reconciliation because, as we talked about before, there are federal matching funds and basically if the federal government um, pulls uh, federal matching funds, there are actual triggers in a lot of these more conservative states' Medicaid expansion programs that says if there is a reduction in federal matching funds, then we're reducing, we're decreasing our Medicaid eligibility again. There's also the individual mandate um, where we talked about previously, there's a tax penalty that goes with it. That tax penalty could be gone through reconciliation. So effectively, there would be no individual mandate anymore. Uh, these are you know, just some of the things that we've talked about. The reason that these things are important is because they keep the Affordable Care Act afloat. So let's talk, for instance, about the individual mandate and why that is so important. The individual mandate is important because... As we talked about previously, it's important that healthy people buy into the system. And so the individual mandate encourages everyone to buy into the system, or if you don't, you get a tax penalty. And thus, all of these healthy people who are normally thinking, you know, I'm too healthy, I don't really need insurance, they're incentivized to buy into the system, and thus they help pay for the health care of people that are higher utilizers. If that goes away, potentially premium skyrocket, particularly if, as the Republicans want to do because it's popular, keep the pre-existing condition and medical uh, underwriting regulations that basically prohibits um, private health insurance companies from denying people for pre-existing conditions and medical underwriting that makes their premiums go really, really high. So then you have a case where the risk pool is sicker 
because people aren't the pe healthy people aren't incentivized by the individual mandate to buy into um, health insurance and and all of these people that under normal circumstances would probably be denied if there wasn't this regulation for pre-existing conditions, they also have to be provided with health insurance. And then we see this death spiral going, right? Well, and we've already, I think, haven't we seen some examples of the death spiral starting to we play have. out in select areas? We have. And I think that, and some people may argue that that's because the individual mandate, the tax penalty attached to the individual mandate is actually not high enough. I'm not sure that I would argue that, but there definitely are people that are, that are still not buying into, healthy people that are still not buying into health insurance. And thus, in some localities, risk pools are very, very, very sick. And thus the premiums are getting really, really like skyrocketing and people, you know, like hand this away because they go like oh well the people that this would hurt the most have subsidies already so it's not a big deal it is a big deal it's a very big deal that you know the premiums were increasing and i think that that was probably one of the major stories that premiums inque increased like 25 percent um that came out right before the election that i think maybe caused some people to pause and think like okay do we really want more Obama and Obamacare because my health insurance is no better than it was eight years ago, which may or may not be true. Probably not true. Well, and, and I think that it didn't help matters that during the primary, uh, instead of arguing quite reasonably, and I think most voters would have agreed even within the Democratic primary electorate that like we needed to revisit some of these provisions and fix some things. Uh, you know, to, to to counter Sanders' Medicare for all argument, uh, you had Hillary Clinton in debates saying, if I remember correctly, things like, you know, we need to close the book on, you know, health reform or whatever. I don't remember the exact wording, but it was something to that effect of like, no, we did it. It's done. Like, yeah, we just, open yeah, up this debate again. right. We're, yeah, no, no reopening the debate. Um, and, that probably gave some people pause when later in the general election, uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to over ascribe anything to any one specific factor, but somebody I think, I think Marcy Wheeler maybe had posted something of like, yeah. saying that that it could be argued that the so called Comey letter effect in the polls was actually the people getting hit by the health insurance premium spike, mm -hmm. because it happened, I think, like a day or two before the letter. Yeah. Um, and and so that, you know, there was a lot of people focusing on that as well. I mean, and that, you know, that could be just my own biases, too, because I personally have a hard time believing that a lot of people were were motivated significantly by the Comey letter. I think it's a lot more likely that some big pocketbook issue hit them right before the election and, and caused them to rethink things. Yeah, Jonathan. Which, which is something that like with anything in the election, it could influence people to switch their vote or to not vote at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, we saw all these people who showed up to vote and then cast blank votes. Yeah. Like, you know, they may have just been like, well, I'm still going to go vote, but I'm just very frustrated with the top of the ticket at this point. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, right. All right. So, Greg, continue. So, between all the things that we've talked about that could be, you know, repealed through uh, reconciliation, um, it, it would effectively dismantle the Affordable Care Act. And there was an Urban Institute report that came out earlier this month, and they said between the Medicaid probably retraction 
the loss of the federal uh, premium subsidies and the individual mandate going away um, that upwards of 30 million people could lose health insurance. And that's 22 million people from just straight up the the federal assistance that they got via Medicaid or premium subsidies goes away because of reconciliation. But that also, uh, I think, did I say 23 million? 23 million there. And about 7 million um, would additionally uh, potentially lose coverage just because this would cause so much uh, turmoil in the private health insurance market. So this is a really, really serious thing that, you know, if we don't, if we're not proactive about this and we let um, the those in charge that sort of want to completely dismantle the Affordable Care Act, you know, regardless of its flaws or whatever, 30 million people, 30 million people are potentially going to lose coverage. And the startling thing is that that is more people than what gained coverage when the Affordable Care Act passed. So we would actually be going to a point that was worse than the status quo in terms of coverage than um, before the Affordable Care Act, if the estimates are right, which is really, really, really concerning. I would imagine so. So, Greg, you've you've been giving us kind of an, an overview of what the Republicans might be doing, um, you know, which, as you said, would retain some good aspects, but possibly set us as far back as before, like worse than the status quo before uh, the Affordable Care Act. Um, next week's episode, uh, the three of us, and we're going to be recording it on the same day, uh, we're going to be talking about um, sort of the big picture future of healthcare, right to healthcare, things like that. Um, but before we get to that, before we get to next week's episode, uh, I want to close us out on this week's episode um, by uh, raising sort of a philosophical kind of question that I think will be a good setup for next week's episode, which is... If these Republican reforms go through um, and we see these, as you referred to them, I think death spirals accelerating on some of the private plans, right, that they're required to basically cover large, unhealthy, expensive populations without the requisite balancing to make that possible, right? Maybe they'll still get the people who are up to 26 on their parents' insurance. But other than that, they're going to potentially be losing some people because of what I think you said, the ma- mandate being canceled. Right. Mm-hmm. And and we and we alluded to this, that, that there have been specific areas of the country, whether it's, uh, or, you know, metropolitan areas or uh, county plans or uh, state level plans where the the criticism before the Affordable Care Act was that a lot of these providers had monopolistic control, like one provider, like Blue Cross or whatever, was providing you know 90% of the coverage in the entire state, and that was especially true in a lot of the Deep South states. And then you had uh, you know that that this supposedly was going to fix this by introducing competition. You know, this was like supposed to be sort of the conservative, competition-oriented, market-oriented solution within states. Um, but now that we're seeing these death spiral pullbacks already, and that's even before the Republicans replace it with whatever they're going to replace it with, is there a potential, I don't want to label it accelerationist scenario, but is there a scenario where it becomes so untenable to to provide private health insurance that we end up seeing 
one of potentially, I guess, two I've heard radical options, which is a massive bailout of the health insurance industry by the government or full-blown nationalization of the you know health insurance which i think is something that has happened in other countries when the you know if they didn't if they didn't go on the model of having a really uh you know high tightly regulated nonprofit health insurance sector they would uh end up having to nationalize at you know in a, in a crisis point for their their health system uh do, do you see these as likely possibilities if these death spirals continue um, are there other options? Are, are we in fact looking at uh, very seriously the possibility of a bailout, which I think I would guess as much as they don't like bailouts, I'm guessing that the Republicans are more likely to do a corporate bailout than they are to nationalize the uh, insurance sector. Yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Greg, f- fill us in on that. Um, and then we're going to wrap up this week's episode and go to next week's episode, which we'll be talking about where we go from here. I think we can maintain a little bit of hope. This has sort of been the the mantra that all of us in the in the public health policy community have been telling ourselves that we as long as the funding mechanism doesn't go completely private and I think maybe next week we'll start talking about um, you know the or we didn't even talk about it this week, the privatization of, of, of Medicare potentially, which is, which is, which is on the table. That's um, something that, that Jonathan and I have talked a little bit about in the past couple episodes. So people can refer back to that or wait until next week's episode. Mm -hmm. So if the, So, so you're saying if the, if the funding doesn't go completely to the private side, right, then there is a potentiality that we could rectify this. I, I think that your bailout scenario is probably more likely than a nationalization scenario. But I think that if and, – and this would have to happen outside of reconciliation. This would have to be a full repeal and then uh, I, I think and then, you know, like a changing in the funding mechanism where like people would get vouchers in order to go, um, you know, buy uh, Medicare – uh, rather than buying Medicare from uh, or getting Medicare from the government, they would go with a voucher and 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 get private health insurance. Or uh, another thing that's been floated is uh, Medicaid block granting, um, which I think also could not be done uh, through reconciliation, as far as I'm aware. Um, so long as these things do not happen, I do think that there still is hope, right? And so. What we need to be doing is because there are certainly people that are on the fence about these things. And I think that Bill has said this, you know, um, previously that you really, really, really need to lean heavily on our representatives and anybody that's sort of potentially on the fence about any of these very vast sweeping changes to the the healthcare system to lean on them and say like, no, you have to understand the ramifications of this. One of the things that is so important to understand about the American healthcare system is this sort of idea of path dependency is that once, once we get down this track, right, we're dependent on it and then we sort of don't deviate from it. And so that's why I think a lot of people in the uh, health policy community think that like so long as we do not change the funding mechanism of Medicare, Medicaid um, and make it and privatize that there is still hope to rectify this in 
four years, maybe perhaps even as soon as two years. And also keep in mind that whatever the Republicans do, they have pledged not to do it super quickly because this for all its faults is a super complex system which is going to take some time to dismantle the reason greg the reason that they're not pushing it through fast is because they don't want the effects to hit them in the 2018 midterms right i mean let's just be brutally honest about that but also uh jonathan's been dying to jump in here i assume to just say give up all hope right oh yeah Yeah. no i was just making questions i i have very little confidence in the in the uh high-mindedness or regard for the well-being of their constituents of the republic republican majorities in both houses or the to greg's point though i i have been emphasizing what i call the uh keeping in mind the squirrely democrats and the squirrely republicans which is uh in either direction tendency to potentially cross over not as a generic matter but as a as a question of like is this something that is unpopular enough in with the voting public in their state that they could be prevailed upon to probably not like permanently kill it, but maybe dial it back? Like Although Dean I think like there there are these these people that can either be prevailed upon to vote outright against, say, voucherization of Medicare, which we've talked about on recent episodes, or uh, can be prevailed upon to tamp down some of the most egregious aspects of a quote-unquote repeal and replace uh, legislation. And I think when you are dealing with, especially reconciliation, if you're dealing with around those margins, like you you A, need to make sure that you lock down your own squirrely Democrats and don't let them cross over, yeah. you know, to vote for some of these things. Uh, and, you know, because there are there are some genuinely conservative Democrats still around and there are also conservative, uh, not necessarily conservative per se Democrats, but Democrats who are really obsessed with finding grand compromises on entitlements issues. And one, in terms of Democrats defecting on that, you'd probably would have the bet if the Republicans were to make repealing the individual mandate as a standalone, that would probably be the most likely place where you would see democrats crossing over but yeah so if you lock down your squirrely democrats and then pick off a few vulnerable republicans which there are some whether they're politically vulnerable or just vulnerable to pressure of some kind um you can if you can get a few of those because they only have 52 senators and the vice Mm -hmm. president so you know if you can get uh if you can get like three republicans to to bail and you don't lose any democrats you can potentially stop some of these things um and i think i think like i am both in the camp that says don't distance you know trump or any of these other extreme leaders from the rest of their caucus but i also do believe that there are still some republicans that can be leaned on in certain contexts if people contact their representatives um okay so that's going to bring us uh to the end on this week's episode again next week we're going to be talking more about the sort of big ideas aspect of uh what could the democrats and the you know left whether they're democrats or not be pushing as a as a mainstream policy alternative um that would be substantially better than both the status quo which we've discussed has some problems as well as what the republicans are going to be pushing um so for this week uh jonathan Cohn, thank you for being here in studio thanks for having me on and greg thank you so much for being on the line to lend us your policy wisdom on this thanks so much and i'll talk to you both uh for next week's episode that's all the time we have this week tweet us your comments at afd radio or email afd radio at gmail.com 
The show is available for download from arsenalfordemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at arsenalfordemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night.